great philosopher of the internet once said, always be yourself, unless you can be Batman. Always be Batman. While neither of us is Terry McGinnis, will likely never be Batman, we can live vicariously through him his many comic adventures. Welcome to Bat Books for Beginners. My name is John. My name's Dylan. And welcome to the new creative team on Bat Books for Beginners. We would like to thank John and Melinda, the previous hosts of Bat Books for Beginners. They did a great job with the podcast, and we hope you enjoy our version of it as well. So for those not familiar with us, uh, we are the duo of Arc Reactions Podcast, a monthly podcast uh, covering comic book stories, analysis, uh, history lessons in, in what the comic books talk about. And just a a slew of other things. Yeah, the format for Arc Reactions podcast is very similar to what you'll hear in this podcast. And we'll tell you how to find it there at the end. Uh, The only difference between that one and this one is that we are doing a variety of stories. So we will do Marvel, DC, and independent stories. And we tried to jump around for different characters so that we give you a wide variety of what's out there in comics. Um, But first, let's give our history with Batman. So why don't you... Tell um, us how you got into Batman, <laughs> what you like about Batman, that sort of thing. All right, well, I mean, I'm a, I was born in 85, so I grew up in the the uh, comic book cartoon heyday, the golden era of comic book cartoons. So, of course, first thing I got hooked on was Batman the Animated Series. Uh, then I got hooked on the 66, 66 Adam West Batman, uh, which is just, you know, great stuff. And then stuff like Batman Beyond, all these other comic book cartoons came out around Batman, around that same kind of era. So I was like, okay, this is really cool. This is really interesting. Who is this guy? What's his story? You know, where can I get my hands on it? So I started picking up Batman comic books. And, you know, I've, of course, been hooked ever since. Yeah, my story is kind of similar, except slightly different order. So I I hit 66 Adam West Batman first. So that was my first introduction to the character. And then I think it was uh, Batman Returns, the movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I totally forgot about the movies, too. <laughs> and then I hit the animated series and Batman Beyond and, and so on. Um, so I've, I've seen many of the animated series. I haven't kept up with them recently for the, the newer iterations the of them. Brave and the Bold, the whatever's going on now. Yeah, I haven't really kept up with those. But I've seen all the movies, the uh, Tim Burton, the Schumacher, the, um, uh, the new guy. Oh, uh, <laughs> Snyder. Uh, uh, Nolan. Nolan, yeah. Well, and Snyder in and comics. Snyder, yeah. Um, and then, like you said, I, I wanted to learn more, so I, I read some comic books. Um, I have not read a, a ton of comic books, but I have read some of the, the important stories, and uh, the stuff that we're going to be covering on Bat Books for Beginners will deepen my knowledge of the character as we go along. Uh, so was Keaton your first movie, Batman? Um, yeah, Batman Returns yep, was yep. my first movie Batman. Same for me. <laughs> and then Forever and, and so on and so forth. I actually didn't watch Batman, the one with the Joker. 
until much later. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, this is back when you couldn't just, like, get it on Netflix and stuff. So you I had to go, no like, ser- search it out and find it. And I it, it, I just didn't for a long time. So Understandable. All right. So that's, that's a quick introduction of ourselves. And now we'll jump into the summary for No Man's Land Volume 4, which is what we're covering in, in this episode. And this is the last volume of No Man's Land. Previously in No Man's Land. After the earthquake that devastated Gotham City, the U.S. government declared it a No Man's Land and destroyed all the bridges leading into the city. They continued to patrol the perimeter and stop anyone from entering or exiting the city. Inside Gotham, various gangs and supervillains vie for territory. Evening. So do the good guys. Gordon leads the Blue Boys, who control the Tri Corner area, and the Bat Squad also fight for the citizens of the city taking territory where they can, and incarcerating villains in Blackgate when they catch them. We pick up on the story of No Man's Land with Two-Face. Together with the Tallyman, the duo, or would it be trio in this case, go to arrest Jim Gordon. Tallyman holds his wife and the rest of Gordon's police force hostage, while Two-Face, with the conscripted help of Rene Montoya, hold a trial of James Gordon. Two-Face, as both prosecutor and judge, is about to declare James guilty when Montoya pleads with Harvey Dent to defend James, appealing to the district attorney he once was. Two-Face flips a coin, and Harvey calls Two-Face to the stand as a hostile witness. Harvey reveals to the court that the agreement that Two-Face and James Gordon had entered was rendered null and void when Two-Face killed people despite Gordon's objections. Having successfully defended Gordon, Harvey submits himself to be arrested by Montoya per their agreement pre-trial. They also release the Montoya family, who he has held hostage for many months. When Gordon returns to his home, he finds his wife safe and sound, and the Bat Squad is there as well. Batman and Gordon go out onto the patio to finally talk after months of Gordon refusing to acknowledge Batman to his colleagues. After many tense minutes, Gordon finally starts yelling at Batman about how a true friend would not have secrets. He references Nightfall and how Batman would think he was stupid to not notice that it was someone else behind the mask. He also chastises him for his absence at the beginning of No Man's Land. Bruce responds by taking the cowl off. Gordon turns away and tells him to put it back on. He says that he does not want to know his identity. But the gesture is enough to restore Gordon's faith in their friendship, and they agree to meet the next evening to make a plan moving forward. We take an interlude to catch up with Robin, who is observing Killer Croc. He is spotted by Croc's men and eventually captured. Alfred helps him escape, and Robin is able to defeat Croc. Once Alfred and Tim return to one of the Batman's hideouts, Tim phones his father to let him know he is okay and that he is inside No Man's Land. This prompts the father to contact his senator and convince him to mount a rescue effort for his son. Jack's persistence pays off. An executive order is signed for an operation to rescue Tim from No Man's Land. Tim is told to go to Grant Park at 7 p.m. the next day. Batgirl accompanies him there as backup, and it turns out she is needed, because the senator mentions the extraction point on television. A gang tries to stop the extraction by shooting at the helicopter, and the rescuer attacking, attaching the harness to Tim. Batgirl is able to stop them, and the rescuer gets Tim safely on board the helicopter. After a short flight, he is reunited with his father. Reunited and it feels so good. Catwoman pulls herself out of the river and back to her safe house in Manhattan. 
She treats her gunshot wound and then proceeds to commandeer a military helicopter to take her back into Gotham City. When they arrive, the soldier decides to crash the helicopter in the hopes of taking Catwoman out with it. He fails, and Catwoman starts to limp away from the crash. Stone of the Hard Cases, from Volume 3, arrives and tries to capture Catwoman, but Azrael steps in to fight him. Catwoman heads off to give Batman the discs he had sent her to retrieve from the Hard Cases. She hands the discs over and disappears back into the city. Batman hands the discs over to Oracle and asks her to monitor the construction equipment that has been entering the city. We are shown that Bane was hired as security for the equipment in question, and at the end of the issue we see the boss he works for land in Gotham. It is none other than Lex Luthor. It doesn't take Luthor long to get things started. He sets up Lex Camp in Grant Park and starts employing any Gothamites who want to work for food and shelter. Lex starts rebuilding the city, and the Joker starts targeting uh, Luthor's construction sites in order to draw out Batman. He does draw attention, but it's from Bane and Lex's assistant, Mercy Graves. They send the clowns packing, and Batman sneaks into Bane's trailer. Batman convinces him to take his payment from Lex, the island off Santa Prisca, now before he changes his mind after being outsmarted by Batman. Not to be outdone by the clown prince of crime, Catwoman is recruited by a penguin, who feels his power is threatened by Luther rebuilding the city. Penguin has her steal goods from Luther. Catwoman goes beyond that and also blows up a portion of Lex Camp to further hamper his efforts. When she returns to Penguin, he has a he has made a deal with Luther contingent on turning Catwoman over to him. Catwoman anticipated his betrayal, however, and escapes blowing up Penguin's holdings on the way out. She continues to hit Luther with theft and mayhem, costing him time and money. He finally requests a meeting, and she agrees to stop hampering his efforts if he only asks nicely. She was doing this whole thing to get back at Mercy Graves for shooting her in the previous part of the story. In Washington, D.C., Lucius Fox announces that the president has signed an executive order to repeal No Man's Land, and the help starts pouring into Gotham. Between LexCorp, the Army Corps of Engineers, Wayne Enterprises, and Star Labs, the water is restored within a couple weeks, and progress is being made every day. Batman is still having Oracle monitor the Bureau of Land Management for Lex Luthor's land grab, and he begins a search for the Joker. Meanwhile, Pettit is hunkering down in his section and demanding everyone in his section attend a Christmas Eve dinner party he is throwing. At the dinner, Joker makes his move and stands outside, taunting Pettit. Pettit? Petit? I say Pettit. I thought it was Petit. I think that's one T. Okay, maybe, I don't know. Pettit? Pettit, in a rage, orders his men out to flank the Joker. He then sets up a prone firing position and proceeds to snipe the Joker when he comes into view. We then hear the Joker ask him if he's ready for number two. Pettit snipes another Joker when he is put in view. This continues for a couple more people while Huntress pleads with Pettit to stop as he's killing his own men. Pettit doesn't stop until Foley tells him that he will go get Gordon's help. Pettit shoots him in the head saying that he told everyone that they couldn't leave. This causes Huntress to start beating up Pettit. As they fight, Joker and his now-armed gang emerge and confront him. Joker shoots Huntress three times before sticking the gun to her head. Just before he can pull the trigger, Batman and Nightwing swing into action. They rescue Huntress, but Joker escapes. Huntress tells him the Joker plans on kidnapping babies before she passes out. Nightwing takes Huntress to Dr. Tompkins, while Batman enlists Gordon's help. Joker appears as Batman, and the police are planning how to search for the kidnapped babies, and taunt them with a Christmas poem. 
proceeds to run away, and Batman chases him, while the Bat Squad and police go looking for the babies carefully to avoid Joker's booby traps. As they search, Lieutenant Essen, Gordon's wife, drops her radio and it breaks. Gordon sends her back to the station to get another one. Batman catches up to the Joker, but after a brief fight, he finds that it was Harley Quinn in disguise. Meanwhile, Azrael saves Batgirl and Mercy Graves from one of Joker's bombs, but is badly burned in the process. Batman gets Joker's location from Harley Quinn, and radios that Joker has the babies at Gotham Central. Batman is en route, but before he can arrive, Lieutenant Essen has found the Joker and the babies. She confronts him, but drops the gun to catch the baby he tosses at her. Joker uses the distraction to shoot Essen in the head, killing her. Batman, Gordon, and the officers arrive as Joker walks out of the building and surrenders. Bullock confirms that Sarah is dead, and Gordon points his gun at the Joker. Batman says that he won't stop him. Gordon almost kills the Joker, but instead shoots him in the knee and has him arrested for murder. He then breaks down in tears and is comforted by Batman. Joker makes the remark uh, when he's shot in the knee that he'll never be able to walk again, just like Gordon's daughter. In the epilogue, Lucius Fox confronts Lex Luthor with the evidence of his forged land deeds for most of the property in Gotham. When Lucius leaves the office, Lex orders Mercy to kill him, but Batman interferes and stops Lex, preventing him from stealing Gotham. On New Year's Eve, everyone attends Lieutenant Essen's funeral, and then that night we see Barbara and Gemma attending a party celebrating the rebuilding of Gotham City. However, at the first opportunity, Jim escapes the party and pours champagne for Sarah and himself at her gravesite. At a clock tower, tolls midnight. We also see Nightwing kiss Huntress and Batman visit his parents' grave. The end. Including the year of No Man's Land. Yes, No Man's Land is over. Alright, so uh, as usual for us, uh, we start out with a note section, just kind of general stuff we noticed. So uh, a few notes here. Uh, we have a few vocabulary words. Uh, Robin72 we get the word patter, which is to say or speak in a rapid or mechanical manner, which uh, Robin refers to Croc's speech as uh, this pattern. It's a pattering pattern. You can't make pattering pattern. That sounds amazing. Yes, it does. Say that sixty-five times fast. Peter Parker picked a peck of pickled peppers with pattering. Pattering in a pattering pattern. <laughs> the other note from Robin seventy-two is that Croc uses the patter of Tucker, Texas writer. Uh, probably a reference to Walker, Texas Ranger. Probably. I know this was right, right about the same so era. This uh, uh, 99-2000, so that would have been, I think, a little bit after that show ended. I want to say that show was on when I was in high school. I can't recall. <laughs> I remember the show. I used to watch it, and I used to like it. Um, I've caught reruns once or twice in the last few years, and uh, I don't enjoy it as much as I once did. So It doesn't hold up. I don't know if it's that or just my tastes have changed. Maybe both. Um, in the Judgment Day issue, we have uh, Nightwing says a man has the DTs. DT stands for Delirium Tremens, which is Latin for shaking frenzy. It is an acute episode of delirium that is usually caused by withdrawal from alcohol. So Tremens, not Tremors? Yeah, that that's definitely an end. Yeah, that's, I've never heard that before. I've heard Tremors before. Never. That's a good that. movie. Yeah, <laughs> bunch of bunch of landworms. All right, we also get uh, scales. Pretty common term, I guess, in comics. Oh, especially in the, for uh, Batman in the Gotham world. Uh, scales is a slang word used for criminals used in the 40s and 50s, which uh, Barbara says that Batman likes the word scales 
when they are discussing what to tell him about the zombie gangsters they fought in the story. And we didn't cover that in the summary because it, that Brevity. story wasn't really relevant to yeah. the overall story. Uh, in Catwoman 76, Penguin says Catwoman is in a disheveled state, which is a state of being only partially or scantily clothed. Or disheveled? Disheveled. I don't know. That's a, that's a peculiar word. It's spelled D-I-S-H-A-B-I-L-L-E. So I think disheveled is probably the right pronunciation of probably. that. Probably. That's, that's a bizarre word. Penguin says that she's in a state of only partially or scantily clothed. I could be getting it confused with disheveled. Uh, disheveled, yeah, that's a totally different word. It's a totally different word, but... Yeah. Um, sorry, we don't have the proper pronunciation there. Uh, the next point here, and I found this one really interesting, is there's a novelization of this story that was written by Greg Rucka and released in January 2000, which is right around the end of this event. Yeah, you have to work really quickly to get that out, or work alongside it. Well, I, I could assume that it's pretty easy to convert your uh, comic script into a, a novel. You just And he's a novel writer. Greg Rucka has written some novels, so I would assume it's not too much of a challenge for him to convert it into novel format. Now, I did read they excluded Azrael and Superman out of the novel. I can understand that. Like, Azrael, I didn't see him as a big part of the story. Yeah, and we'll get awesome. to more, more of that as, as we talk in our discussion points. But I thought that was really interesting to put a novel version of this out as well as the comic. That's pretty rare. <laughs> but, all right, so uh, the next uh, note we have is the story introduces us to the as-yet-unnamed daughter of Cain becomes the third Batgirl, second one being Huntress, which who's also in the story, and the first one, of course, being Barbara Gordon. Um, we later learn that her name is Cassandra Kane, not to be confused with Catherine Kane, who's Batwoman. Uh, spelled differently. Spelled differently. And she's the daughter of David Kane and Lady Shiva, both villains. Sort of. Sort of. Kane is kind of a... Kane not, is definitely a villain. Yeah. Lady, Lady Shiva trained Batman. She's like, she's not, she's not so much an anti-hero... She's kind of a villain, but she's also not really a villain. It's, it's weird. It's, it's Batman's usual contentious relationship with people who don't follow his moral code. Yes. So yeah, so we get uh, introduced to her, of course. Uh, we also get introduced to Marcy Graves and Harley Quinn. Well, Har- Harley Quinn's first appearance is in Batman Adventures number 12 back in uh, 1993. Batman Harley Quinn in this story is her first appearance in Earth One continuity. Marcy Graves had previously appeared in Superman the Animated Series. So we had two characters, very popular characters from the Animated Series. This is really their first big introduction to the in the comic book world. Of course, Harley Quinn was always a fan favorite in the uh, Animated Series. Yeah, Batman Animated Series and then Marcy Graves from the Superman Animated Series. So different yeah. Animated Series, but still yeah. came from the television world, which is pretty rare. Usually it goes the other way. Yes, but I mean, you know... I thought that was kind of rad, too. And we saw that uh, with uh, Agent Coulson from the Avengers movie. He got, of course, in Marvel Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And then he started showing up in the comic books. So, you know, there's three examples of the same thing. But, yeah, Harley Quinn and Coulson were both big fan favorites in their medium. And then got, you know, brought into the comic books because they were so popular. Graves, I don't know. If, I don't think I don't know if she was a fan favorite or not, though. In the show, I, I don't know. I, I liked her in this story. Yeah, she was definitely really good in this story. Very uh, a very good bad guy. Good henchman. Good henchman. Yeah. Um, and so the last note point we have here is elements of No Man's Land were used in the Dark Knight Rises film, where Bane blew up all the bridges except for one leading out of Gotham. 
Um, also, Gordon is put on trial in the film, but it's by Scarecrow rather than Two-Face. So those are a couple elements that were added to the Dark Knight Rises film on top of it telling some of the Nightfall story arc. Yeah, so I thought, I thought that was kind of cool that they were they pulled from several Batman iconic stories. Yeah, I'm a little uh, conflicted on that. Like, I, I'd, I'd kind of like to see a straight telling of the comic story, but I can also see why they wouldn't do that, because if you're very familiar with the comic story, then there's nothing surprising about the film. Yeah, uh, well, and like No Man's Land, they have to introduce Huntress. They have to introduce so many characters and give them a very... Which is doable. We've seen it done before, where you can do a in-movie telling of the history of multiple characters and still keep it uh, rather succinct. But it is a difficulty, because it's, you have so many characters that would have to get introduced, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that the movie was bad. I did enjoy the movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we'll move on to our talking points, and uh, we start with the bad things just to get them out of the way so that we leave you with the good things or what we feel are the better discussions at the end of the episode. So the first bad thing that we have, and I don't want to harp on this too much because on Arc Reactions podcast we've talked about this several times, and if you want more of our opinion on that, you can go listen to those. Uh, women drawn overly sexual, sexualized. And this is, uh, when we talk about that, we talk about very unrealistic drawing uh, or women put in poses that are either A, uh, not what have you got for feasible me? or possible, a la anything Rob Liefeld drew. Got my Liefeld hit in there. and uh, Or just in, in costumes that are ludicrous or very clearly, you know, just it doesn't, it doesn't help anything and it looks really not great. In this story, I'd say the prime offender is the Catwoman series. You know, we don't want to hammer on it too much. As we said, we've covered it several times in the past, but we do want to bring it up because it's definitely a bad point. It's something that we both dislike to see. It's you know drawn in a style that it's just it, one. It doesn't look good. Two, it's just it's ludicrous. You know, ridiculous poses, and it, it to us it detracts from the story. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Well, we're also going to talk about Nightwing as a male sex symbol here, and the depiction of Nightwing, which is not something we usually do. Uh, well, we haven't really had much with Nightwing in it. Yeah, true. Um, so we haven't had a chance to talk about this, and this is one of those things that I always heard about, and this is kind of the most I've seen him as his Nightwing character in any particular story to to get a feel for it. And I didn't particularly like what Nightwing did in this story. Um for a lot of the story, it seems like he's going to get back together with Barbara Gordon. They have these meaningful conversations about her thinking that when she got paralyzed in the killing joke, that it kind of broke the relationship that he and, and Barbara Gordon had. And then it seems like they're kind of working through that. And he's like saying all the right things of um, my feelings for you never changed. Just because you got paralyzed doesn't mean I feel any differently about you. And then we see at the end of the story, he goes and kisses Huntress on New Year's Eve, and that just really bothered me. Yeah, it's, it's. I don't know why they went with that. It seems like it would have been a much better relationship between uh, Barbara Gordon and Nightwing. Uh, that being said, it could be used to symbolize the repairing of relationships after No Man's Land and letting what happened in No Man's Land go. Because Nightwing and Huntress were at odds a lot during No Man's Land. Uh, so it very well could be that, okay, yeah, now we want to show No Man's Land is over. We want to show, show that people are, you know, 
saying what happened in No Man's Land stays in No Man's Land. Basically, it's a there's a, a situation of, of uh, desperate times call for desperate measures. That's the only thing, and I'm not trying to say that's what they intended. I'm saying it could be interpreted as such. I don't feel it was that way at all. I, 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 one, I didn't really see what you're talking about with the contention between Nightwing and, and Huntress. And we'll talk more about Huntress's portrayal later. Uh, we have a talking point for that. Um, I, I would think if you're going to go about repairing relationships, having him get back with Barbara Gordon is the, the epitome of repairing a relationship. I'm, I'm not saying repairing a relationship. In the sense of, like, I mean, an into, with what happened in No Man's Land. Basically saying, okay, what happened in No, no Man's Land happened. We understand that this was a, a time of great strife and contention. So we're not going to, these characters aren't going to hold against each other the decisions they made during No Man's Land. Much like, uh, okay, uh, Huntress teaming up with Petit, or Pettit, and his very much militant and uh, severe way of dealing with crime and criminals. Well, let's hold on to that, because I want to bring that up when we talk about Huntress, because we disagree on on what we believe caused that. So okay. we'll, we'll get to that later. Um, Robin? I, yeah, yeah I, I guess we'll, we'll agree to disagree on that, that point, and we'll move on to the next point here, which is, this doesn't have to do with Nightwing being a male sex symbol, but it fits with Nightwing, so I just stuck, stuck it in here. He spends a lot of time with Robin on missions in this story, and we don't see much of Batman and Robin. We see a lot of Nightwing and Robin, or Robin on his own. And I didn't really like that. I, I would have much preferred it to be Batman and Robin and Nightwing on his own. Now, we did get the one story with Nightwing on his own in Blackgate. But a lot of times, Nightwing was teamed up with Robin. Yeah, which, I, I don't know, it, it kind of makes sense to me in so much... Uh, and we've seen this kind of in the past where Nightwing and Robin get along a little better because they have a, a shared experience being dealing with the Batman. Uh, and, and, you know, kind of... Batman's always given kind of a... a hands-off uh, authority, where he's like, I'm going to do this, you can come along or not. Or you're not allowed to come along. Yeah, exactly. So they have that very much shared experience of dealing with Bruce Wayne and Batman. Now, we know, you know, of course, Nightwing, and when Nightwing stopped being Robin, it was because of an argument with Bruce, because of an argument with Batman. So it could be that kind of helping Robin cope and it being such a situation where Batman has to go off and do stuff on his own, things that only he can handle, and he doesn't want to leave Robin alone because Robin's still inexperienced. But he did. There were plenty of times Robin was sent out to scout something on his own. Yeah. So I, I don't buy that. Okay. Uh, also, it seemed like it was assignments coming from either Oracle or Batman as far as you two do this, you two do that. So it seems like they were paired up, not just like a natural... Uh, well, I think, uh, see, I'd say they were paired up because they have a a, nat- a natural bond and shared experience. I don't think Batman I mean, not, thinks about that. No, not necessarily, but, you know, when Batman's off doing his own thing, he's giving assignments out, they're going to, okay, we'll work together on this type deal. Yeah, I, I don't know. It just, it was interesting to me, um, and I didn't particularly like it, because to me, it, it seems like... The Robin character, if he needs a mentor, it should be Batman. It shouldn't be someone else. Because, yeah. like, pretty much all the other Bat characters, maybe with the exception of Nightwing at this point and Oracle, are kind of still in the needing mentorship of their own stage. Now, yeah. I realize you can have tiered mentorship. You could have Batman mentoring someone who's mentoring someone else, but it or just seems... Or having Batman having had mentored Nightwing, Dick Grayson, now Nightwing is mentoring 
uh, Tim Drake saying, okay, yeah, I know, I understand where your complaints about the Batman are going to come from. I'm, I have a shared experience. I'm willing to listen to you and I can empathize with you. But you can have that portion of it, just having them have a conversation and also still have Batman teaming up with Robin. True. You don't have to put Nightwing teaming up with Robin to have those conversations. I, I just don't think it's a big issue, personally. I mean, it's just, you know, I, it's something that piqued you that didn't really peak or resonate with me, but yeah. Okay, yeah, I, I can see that. It It is so, sort of a minor quibble, but it is something where, I mean, you have a title now called Batman and Robin. Now. Now. Then not at not at this, Not at 99, but yeah. I mean... That's the, the team that everyone expects. So, like, if you were just picking these books up off the shelf, you're like, oh, I know Batman and Robin. And then you're like, well, Robin's doing this and Batman's doing this. Where's Batman and Robin? Well, the thing is, you know, they're written for a different era. You're trying to uh, retroactively compare. Yeah. Uh, it, it's I think it's just personal preference at this point. So we'll move on. Um, the next point that, that I found bad was I really don't like Bruce Wayne as a playboy. And what is your your opinion I, about that? I appreciate uh, portraying Bruce Wayne as a playboy. It's not necessarily something I I like or dislike. It's just like okay, I get where they're coming from with that, and it's it harkens back to his history, where you know they, it was a less gris, grisly time is back in the you know ideal era of uh, comic books where these are very heroic stories and it's, it's before the 90s where, and when everything is grim and gritty and Liefeldian that's two digs I get on Liefeld today uh, where where you know it's much more idealistic so having Bruce Wayne as millionaire playboy philanthropist to steal a line made sense so it's just I think it's a callback to his history I, I guess I mean it, it's not the Bruce that I like to see portrayed like, I prefer the Bruce that's a pillar of Gotham, that's a captain of industry, running his company, you know, where Bruce can affect the city as well as Batman, but in a completely different way than Batman. Well, yeah, so you're you're more for a pure heroic portrayal, a pure good guy portrayal, versus a, okay, yeah, he's, he's a, a more human portrayal. I, I guess, but... It sounds like you want the Bruce idealized the, portrayal. Bruce the Playboy is so fake to me. I mean, just look at the look at the the conversation that Bruce had when he was in Oracle's apartment with Lucius, where Oracle has to play the ditzy uh, uh, hookup hook up woman, while and Bruce is is trying to uh, make himself sound like he's half interested in this information he really wants to get to Lucius. Well, I mean, think about it this way: uh, as far as Lucius knows he's yeah. You know, Lucius is basically running the company. He's Bruce Wayne's just the CEO figurehead. Yeah, I don't like that. But 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 who? Which is more believable? Bruce Wayne, who is the pillar of the community, who's always trying to uplift Gotham, as Batman, who, a, a vigilante who's running around at night, you know, fighting criminals, or Bruce Wayne, the aloof playboy who's really only half interested, who spends all his time gallivanting, uh, is Batman. So I think the first one's more. You know, you could make that connection easier. He's trying to play off that he's not Batman. He's trying to make the that's appearance. That's the of... second one. Your first example was the pillar of the community. Yeah, that. Oh, that's what I mean. Like the, the, the pillar of community. If you could make the connection, okay, yeah, this guy's Batman. But if oh, he, I see what you're saying. He's, okay. he's he's hiding his identity, and you know we've seen it several times in any depiction. Uh, in fact, uh, Batman, the future Batman, uh, Terry McGinnis Batman. He's you know. 
when when Terry McGinnis breaks into Bat, the Bat Cave, Bruce Wayne says something along the line of, "You know, I knew it was." He, he's talking to McGinnis, and McGinnis didn't think he knew he was there. And he asks, "Well, what, what? You didn't think it was your own voice, or you were just hearing voices?" And Bruce says, "Well, first of all, when I'm talking to myself, I don't call myself Bruce Wayne." Yeah. yeah, I mean, we've, we've heard that in several exactly. instances where Batman is the true persona and Bruce Wayne is, is the mask. Yes. But, so he's he's putting on that mask of the aloof playboy who doesn't really care. I get it, but I would, I prefer the mask of, I, I prefer the mask of Bruce Wayne as but the pillar of the community. It's, it's a much thinner mask, is what you're saying. You prefer a much thinner mask. And, well, I, I prefer the, the, the double ability of the character to help his city. Because Batman's focus has always been Gotham City. That's his first and primary yeah. focus. So, he, so as a pillar of the community, Bruce Wayne, he can affect the city in two methods, as Batman and as Bruce so Wayne. He's saying that he's not guiding Lucius, or you know, when he's talking to Lucius and suggesting things, he's not. But he's still trying to play off that he's not Batman as Bruce. When he's wearing the Bruce Wayne mask, he wants to be as far removed from any idea that he could possibly be Batman. Yeah, I get it. I understand what you're okay, saying. Then, then, I just then don't just like quibbling. it. Then we're just quibbling. Well, I'm saying I don't like it. Okay. Then we're talking personal preference. Yes. I, I mean, I understand what you're saying, and I can see that that you you recognize the conversation with Lucius in the veil of being the half-interested playboy as the same effect on Gotham that I think that the pillar of Gotham, Bruce Wayne, would have. You think he can have that same effect while portraying the playboy? Yes. I disagree with that part. I think that the Playboy Bruce Wayne, and I think if you look at when he tried to convince them not to uh, uh, not to declare no man's land with, with the, the Senate, and basically got laughed out of the room, that the Playboy Bruce Wayne doesn't have the same weight as the Pillar of Community Bruce and, Wayne. And that might be, and that might be why he he's portrayed as both. Is he? This could be the turning point where you realize, okay, I can't just be the playboy because it's not going to get me anywhere with with the muckety mucks, the higher ups, the Senate, the Congress, what have you. Well, now if we get stories going forward where he's trying to clean up his playboy image, a la uh, we, um, we can revisit this with that happens. The guy on Arrow, um, uh, Oliver Queen, because he was a playboy at the beginning of the show Arrow, and only known as a playboy and a kind of a. a doesn't care, he's a millionaire's son sort of thing, and then he changes to become the head of his company, you know, as the show goes along, and be, he becomes more responsible and everything. And so that's a good uh, growth of the character. So if we get that in, in the comics, oh, is Bruce Wayne's growth from being the playboy well, to we, being the pillar of the community... We can't know that without reading full. Right, I'm just saying I would be I would be okay with it if, if we're going that direction. I just have a feeling that at some point they just kind of flip a switch and these... And that, that well, and that's the problem with dealing with a character that's been in publication for 50 plus... I think it's what, 75? 75 years. Yeah, 75 years. Uh, so, coming up on 76. So yeah, I... All right, so moving on. Okay. Yes. All right, Joker targeting the women in Gordon's life. And this is one I had a, qual- uh, a, a problem with. And I didn't have as much of a problem. Okay. Finally, I get to flip the switch on you. Uh, so, the, of course, Gordon, uh, or, or Joker, first thing he does, and this was in, uh, we covered this in Killing Joke, I believe it was, where he, he paralyzes Barbara Gordon. 
Yeah, I believe this was our third or fourth episode on Arc Reactions podcast. We covered Death in the Family and Killing Joke. So yeah, uh, it's a nice reference back to it here in, in this story. I did like that. I just think that we get it very much when it revolves around James Gordon, a woman in refrigerator situation where the women in his life are used as fodder. Of course, this, uh, Sarah is his second wife, I believe it is. It's not Barbara Gordon's mom. It's, uh, you know, newly newly wed or recently wed. She's a detective or lieutenant, I believe it was, lieutenant. So I, it just seems like every woman in his life is fodder for the Joker to, uh, to use as a character motivation or create tragedy and create story with this character. Otherwise, he, you know, he has a few stories, but it just seems like any, any woman involved with James Gordon is going to be put in the refrigerator. Metaphorically. Metaphorically speaking, of course. And, you know, we referenced that a few times. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. I, I agree women in refrigerators is a trope, and we've had this discussion on Arc Reactions podcast. I, I don't want to keep, you know, referencing everything we've talked about on Arc, on Arc Reactions podcast because this is a different podcast. So we'll go over it a little bit here. We don't like women in refrigerators. I mean, th- there is nothing to like about that. It is a disproportionate amount of stories where a female character is hurt, killed, depowered, some, something to motivate a male character. But I also feel like you can't just take that storytelling device away. The uh, threat to a loved one storytelling device, if used in moderation, is a good storytelling device. So I, I feel like in, in this case with Gordon... And the Joker, that these are good stories. Like, I don't feel like this is dipping into the well too many times, which I think is what you're, yeah, you're I, getting at. I, I actually like it's dipping into the well one more time, one more time dipping in. And it's just, you know, I agree. You don't want to take away the the ability for storytellers to say, okay, well, this is a story, te- a story where a loved one is threatened, and that's what motivates the character, or the lo- something happens to a loved one. But we saw the exact same style thing where Gordon's, Gordon has a loved one injured, he and he's in the position to kill the Joker, and instead doesn't because morality or whatever it is, uh, no, or Gotham still has a soul or whatever whatever it is that Batman says. It's just it seems like it's just it, I, I, it's so on point that it's too it's too similar for it to be a callback to me. And it, it seems like they tried to make it a callback. I don't know. I I. It doesn't bother me. I, I can tell it bothers you. It, do, it doesn't bother me. Um, I, I, I don't want to keep rehashing what we just said. I, I feel like women in refrigerators is a bad thing because of the amount of times it's been used. But I, I also feel like this wasn't, a, this wasn't a bad usage of it. This was a good usage of it. Okay. I, I, I disagree, but I don't want to spend too much time on it. So that ends our bad points, fortunately. So uh, we'll get to move on to the good things, the things in the story we enjoyed, the things we saw that were worthy of praise or uh, admiration, or things that we just thought were cool that they did. The the relationship between Batman and Gordon. And, of course, uh, during the beginning of the story, Batman was out of town. He was trying to get No Man's Land lifted from the Senate, and that's why Batman wasn't in Gotham. So Bruce... Or, Gore, or Batman, to repair his relationship, makes the effort to reveal his identity. He's basically, Gordon's like, you never thought of me as a friend or an ally. I'm just a pawn to you because you use me. There's no trust. It's a one-way street here. So Bruce takes his cowl off 
And Gordon's like, no, I don't care who you are, but I appreciate the, uh, the gesture, gesture that you just made. Thank you. I, couldn't, I had a hard time with that word. And that really repaired their relationship. And I thought that was a really cool touch because it's, Gordon understands the, the necessity of the secrecy of Batman's identity, but he also, having that gesture being made says, okay, he's willing to trust me with something huge. So I should I I will have to get over my problems and I have to trust him again. Now that is about the level of trust I feel like Batman was willing to give. Like even though they meet the next night about planning things, it's still kind of Batman's plan, and he lets people know as they need to know what they need to know, and keeps pretty much the entire plan to himself for the most part. So I don't feel like there's really any growth on Batman's part. I think. While it was cool, and while... It was empty? No, I, I I think the pathos was there for for that moment, and I think it was good that that uh, Gordon refused to, to get that information, and he doesn't try and figure out who Batman is. I think that's good, because that makes one less way that the, the supervillains can, can attack Batman, uh, or a vulnerable... Yeah. In his vulnerable form of Bruce Wayne. Considering how many people know who... That Bruce Wayne is Batman, though. <laughs> yeah, over the years, a bunch of people have learned that secret, so it's not as secret as it once was. But, I mean, I, I think it was good that Gordon didn't take it, but also I think it was a little bit a little bit hollow in that Batman still is rather solo, is rather um, private. Yeah, solitary and private, and doesn't, doesn't let people know unless they absolutely need to know what the plan is. So really, it felt more like a return to the status quo. I think that was primarily what that was for, because it got Gordon off of his high horse of, we don't need Batman, Batman's forsaken this city, even though he'd been working in the city for like three months or, or longer at that point. He'd already been back a long time. It's just Gordon was being stubborn. Yeah. So it, it got us past that in a an interesting way, but... Yeah, it's kind of a return to status quo in that I don't think Batman is going to be more open with the police or more open with the Bat Squad, Bat Family at that point. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. It, it did feel like, and I think that kind of moves it away from the good points. While it was a cool gesture and a cool thing, a moment in the story, it very much was a hollow, well, not really hollow, but it was a just return to status quo. It didn't grow the characters, Gordon or Batman, in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, but I still thought it was cool. Yeah, I, I agree. It's just, you know, I, I agree that it, the moment was cool, but the after effect was a bad point. Okay, I can give you that. Yeah. Um, so the next point is uh, the ending to this year-long No Man's Land story. So we read the whole story in relatively short succession since we happened to be taking over the podcast right at the end um, and weren't able to take each volume individually and cover it. So we kind of got it on a very condensed timeline, and you could really see the filler at points in it. But I thought that this section was very well done. The, this last volume was was very good. It it was a it was a really good way to end the story. And while some of, while we just talked about how the the whole Batman Gordon thing kind of was just a return to status quo. There are things going forward that were changed by this story. I mean, we have a new Batgirl, which we hadn't had a Batgirl in a long time. We, of course, had Harley Quinn, the 
teammate to the Joker, the henchwoman to the Joker, and somewhat love interest, maybe one 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 way one love. way love interest, yeah. Um, and then we have, of course, Lieutenant Essen getting killed, and what that's going to do to Gordon. I think that's the biggest effect on Gordon. Yeah, Essen betraying Gordon, and then the whole betraying, well, abandoning Gordon, leaving Gordon to go make the. Uh, oh no, Essen! I was thinking Pettit, not Pettit, Essen. Yeah, yeah, Pettit. All right, yeah, Essen. Yeah, uh, his his wife. Yes. Yeah, uh, having Essen killed is definitely going to have a huge impact on, or should at least have a huge impact on the character and makes him, at least make him question the whole being a cop thing. I don't know about that. I mean, I mean, Gordon very much, he lives, he lives as a cop, but how many times do your loved ones have to be affected by your job and, and, you know, your, your work come home basically and bite you or bite the ones you love before you start going, okay, maybe this is the wrong line of work. But this wasn't a case of his loved one being... Like, Barbara Gordon was a case of, of his loved one being affected by his job, I believe. Yes. But this was not a case of his loved one being affected by his job. It was her it job. Was her job. Yeah. So I don't think you That's can make point. that same... That's a good point. That I, I same, didn't think of that. Uh, ...comparison here. I stand corrected. Um, <laughs> so, it, while well, it's tragic for him... Yes. Um, I don't think it will affect him in, in what, what, how he feels about his job. Yeah, I mean, it might affect him in other ways, you know. Just, I mean, if you have a tragic thing happen to you in your life, it will affect how you do your work, but not necessarily well, maybe, how you feel about the work you do. Maybe him, you know, seeking out someone as a life partner, because everyone, everyone in his life, something bad happens to. Basically, you mean becoming uh, romantically involved to put put another person in danger? Yeah. But That's like, like the opposite way I think it would go. If, no, if, I'm saying that he wouldn't want to do that. I'm saying oh, he wouldn't okay. he wouldn't seek out another uh, girlfriend or, or wife. Right, right, yeah. He would He'd become, be very uh, hesitant to uh, uh, start a relationship of any kind. Right, be, because the word word's escaping me. Stay single. Stay single. Yeah. Um, yeah, but the word is is and maybe escaping. even push uh, Barbara, his daughter, away because you know everyone in his life eventually comes into tragedy. It seems. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if they get closer or if they... Push, uh, he pushes her away. Or she pushes him away. Kind of like what happened in Harry Potter with, uh, God, was it the third or fourth book where Dumbledore basically, you know, separated himself completely from Harry because he felt he, Harry was in danger of being around him. Okay. Uh, I don't have the same reference for Harry Potter. Uh, do. I have seen the movies, but... Uh, well, yeah, an entire, like, I think it's like the fourth or, God, third or fourth movie, maybe even the fifth. He basically, anytime Harry tries to engage him, he just, you know, he ghosts away. He, he doesn't answer him. He doesn't, you know, he avoids him at all costs because, and, and this is like he even addresses this by word in case the audience didn't pick up on the subtlety of a sledgehammer. Uh, that he, he pushed Harry away because he thought being around him is what caused Harry to be in danger, and it really wasn't. But yeah. Okay, so. interesting comparison. Um, sorry, I can't add to that. Yeah. Uh, you know, you um, watch more movies. <laughs> no, um, I just need to remember the movies I watch. <laughs> right, um, well, another thing that we really enjoyed, that this was a very much a very close, I should say, to a real-time story. It takes place both in publication and story-wise over a year. So it wasn't exactly spot-on, but it was. they kept the reference pretty close. Yeah, the one point where I, I really noticed this was in Batman 573, it is day 314 of No Man's Land, 
And then in Detective 740, which is the next issue, it is day 321 of No Man's Land, which is exactly a week later. And these uh, the books were coming out one week apart during No Man's Land, for the most part. I mean, yeah. they had more than 52 books. It was, uh, I think, 84... 85. 85. So uh, more than one per week in, in some cases. But they were having something new for this every single week. So th- that effect that it was pretty much a real-time story was very interesting. Yeah, that's... That's very rare in comics. So. And it's hard to do, I think. it's That'd be a hard feat to accomplish. They did a phenomenal job with it, keeping it uh, on pace. I mean, we know it's been 75 years of publication for Batman, and if you kind of exclude that the last three years as a, as a, of New 52 is uh, a hard reboot, that's, what, 72 years? Batman didn't age 72 years in uh, from seven, 1940 to, to the uh, ending of that continuity and the starting of New 52. Thankfully. <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's not a one-to-one all the time, but it's interesting that this one was a one-to-one as far as... Uh, Storytelling goes. Yeah. Yeah. The sliding timeline of comics, but yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's something I think we both kind of admired and really enjoyed about that. I, I thought it was interesting. I, other than that, it didn't really affect my enjoyment of the story. Okay. I, I, thought, I thought it added to it, for me at least. I mean, I'm glad that they didn't try and stretch this, um, because... A year of, of, or 85 issues of this was more than enough, I think. Yes. I think we got enough of the story. So I don't think trying to stretch that year of comics time by telling more, putting more content in there would have helped it. No, I agree there. Um, so I think that was a good decision on their part. Uh, all right, so our next talking point will be the Joker. Um, one thing that I think we both didn't like, he had, uh, I, I can only really compare it to Wayne Static, the former lead singer of Static X, his hair, where it's just like straight up, like, it, it, it made Guile from Street Fighter jealous. It wasn't, it was like it kid, and play, kid it, and play on steroids. Yeah, It wasn't perfectly straight, though. It, like, went up Kavey? like that, and then, like fell over or yeah, fell back it was, it was or something. Weird hair. Yeah, I, I didn't really I didn't really didn't like his hair. And yeah. I think that's just a, a product of the times of when this story was told as far as they thought that looked cool, so they drew it that way. Yeah. Um but that's just a really minor quibble. I think this is a very well written Joker. Um it, it is the type of Joker that that I like. It's he's he's intelligent. I mean he had a plan uh with the, the babies and everything. He's sadistic he had a plan with involving babies. <laughs> well, and, and just sadistic, <laughs> and just he, he, the the whole thing with the with dressing up the police officers so that Pettit will shoot him and and uh, murdering Lieutenant Essen and of course his henchman, but he does that all the time. Yeah, um, but he also had a splash of humor, you know, with the the whole poem delivered by Harley Quinn, who's supposed to be him, and yeah, and it just all he had his normal type of humor. He was sadistic, murdering, and he was intelligent. That's that's the Joker I like. Same here. I, and it's it's just, usually you get one played up way too high, uh, a la Death of the Family. Um, well, I'm glad you brought that up, because that's one thing that I don't have written down here that I do want to touch on, is Scott Snyder's version of the Joker. Okay. You want to do that after this one? Uh, well, do you want to just cut in right now, or you want to finish your Let me finish my okay. thought. Uh, he, he gets played up a lot, one uh, only one facet, and makes him more one-dimensional, and he is the complete package here. This is the Joker, as John said, that we both love. It's, you know, he's conniving, he's intelligent, he's sadistic, he's twisted, but he also has that sick sense of humor. 
Okay, so now Snyder Joker. Okay, so let's. So this is Earth One, I guess. What What is it now? New Earth. New Earth. New Earth One. I think it's just called New Earth. It's New Earth Crystal Pepsi One. <laughs> anyway, so New Earth or New Fifty Two Joker, which is mostly written by Scott Snyder, although other writers have taken a, a stab at it a little bit, like in Death of the Family. Um, Scott Snyder seems to be, and this is something that they covered on uh, the TBU Comics podcast issue one fifty one or episode 151 that just released in uh, uh, January 9th. So you can hear uh, Dustin, Stella, and Ed talk about that more on that one. But I just wanted to get, we wanted to give our thoughts on it as well. So the, the new Joker that Scott Snyder wrote in Death of the Family, and he's also writing now in Endgame, is extremely smart, long-term planning. Um, like, they were comp- saying they feel he's smarter than the Riddler. And also uh, very good with his toxins, like, has been making them so that Batman's antidotes no longer work. So kind of like Snyder is pulling these elements from other characters, like the smarts of the Riddler, the poison ability of the Scarecrow, and giving them all to Joker and kind of making him into this Moriarty-type villain for Batman, who's equal to, if not superior, to Batman at times. Yeah. And I'm okay with that. It, as long as everyone's on board, but if you get, we, we talked about, cause we did cover death of the family on arc reactions podcast. And we talked about how, when you had the crossover point in that, towards the end of that story, you got a whole bunch of different treatments of the Joker with the various writers that were contributing and they weren't all consistent fitting with Snyder's portrayal of the Joker. And that's a problem that I feel like DC needs to address going forward because seems like every Snyder story has a crossover. Um, they're they're going to get one here with Endgame, or it may have already happened by the time this releases, uh, where other writers jump in and have to contribute to the story. And if the other writers aren't writing the same character that Snyder's writing, it's very hard to to enjoy that story. Yeah. So I feel like a reimagining of the Joker is fine as long as everyone's on board. Well, I, I, do, I do have a problem with that because it basically makes all the other villains that you mentioned, like the Riddler, the villain I really like, well, Rid- uh, villain slash hero at times, and the Scarecrow kind of null and void. What 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 uses the Scarecrow when you can just use the Joker? But I think it lets you tell... Uh, this is a problem with current DC, I think. I think it lets you tell lower-stakes stories, and they aren't good at that right now. Everything's dark and high stakes in, in the New 52. Well, we're getting some lighter books, like Harley Quinn and and some of the other uh, side, or, side books that are a little bit lighter in tone. But I think those villains, um, I know you don't like um, the puppet guy. Oh, uh, Scarface. Scarface, yeah. yeah. I know you don't like him, but I, I like him because it's a lighter story. It's it's a, it's a, a less-stakes story, usually. Uh, let me correct you there. I don't like him as a high-stakes villain. I do think you're right if you tell him as a... A what Modok in Marvel Universe is currently being portrayed as is kind of goofy and like really this this is the villain we're fighting type villain, then yeah he can be a, a low stakes kind of like why you know let's send Robin after him because Robin Robin can handle this guy. Yeah, I, I mean I'm not let's, let's send let's send Aquaman Aquaman or Booster Gold can handle Scarface. I mean we know <laughs> Batman has a huge rogues gallery and we could sit here and run out of fingers and toes yeah. trying to name all the all the characters characters that Batman has gone up against. Which is fortunately, because that's only as high as I can count. <laughs> Finger to toes. And we still wouldn't be hitting the really, like, bottom-of-the-barrel ones. Yeah. Um, 
they don't all have to be equal. Condiment think, king. <laughs> Clock king. Cl- uh, 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 the quilt, uh, the quilt cr- man? Crazy quilt crazy or something quilt, like that, yeah. yeah. Um, I, but I don't, I feel like all the villains <laughs> don't have to be on the same level. No, I, I agree with that, but to, you have to, you run the risk of invalidating a lot of villains that were kind of the A-listers. And you yeah. don't want to have one A-list villain. You want to have at least a few A-list villains. So I, what would you consider the a, the the proper set of A-list villains for Batman? I mean, okay, so, of course, Joker is the name that everyone's going to bring up first and foremost. Uh, Scarecrow. Uh, Riddler's a good guy now, or he was a good guy. I don't know. Uh, he's not really an A-lister, though. Uh, Mr. Freeze can be an A-list. Bane definitely should be, because he's really if he's portrayed correctly, he's extremely smart and intelligent. Ra's al Ghul, you know... Just to name a few, you know, the, the ones that everyone knows, everyone's familiar with. So, like, Poison Ivy. Penguin, Ivy, Penguin, so, so, I don't want to get in too much of a discussion on this. Penguin is the anti-Bruce Wayne. He's not the anti-Batman. He's the anti-Bruce Wayne. Because so, he's kind of into he, industry? And... He's, he's, he's a captain of industry. He's very smart, very conniving, very uh, good with people. He's, he's much more of a... A tactician and and controller of people. He's not a frontline fighter. Uh, he's a guy who has people who does that for him. Okay. He's everything. He's basically everything Bruce Wayne is not. And you feel like the people that can go toe to toe with Batman are should be the A listers. Well, I, and I'm not saying that necessarily he wouldn't be an A lister because it's he can't go toe to toe. I think he's a better Bruce Wayne villain than he is a better Batman villain. Okay, because to me, like I don't consider Scarecrow an A list villain. Okay. I would say he's probably a B-list villain. I think you're right about Bane. I, I don't think he's used well a lot of the time, but when he is used well, could be an A-list v- villain. I think he doesn't have the, the pedigree. He doesn't have the history to be an yeah. A-list villain yet. But I feel like he could become an A-list villain. Um, I think Penguin should be an A-list villain for a lot of those reasons you said. Is He can pose a problem to the Bruce Wayne that I like, the, the pillar of Gotham Bruce Wayne, as well as a problem to Batman. Um, I th- I don't think Freeze is an A list. I think he's probably B or C. There's, I think there's very few A lists. You know, like a yeah. lot. There's a lot more B lists. So I, I'm fine with with Joker being maybe an A plus list, and okay. then you have like two or three at the A list, and then a bunch more at the B list. And I can, even I maybe drop it. Yeah, and even maybe dropping uh, Scarecrow and Riddler down a little bit in the New Fifty Two, if as long as it's consistent. Yeah. So I, I think we don't want to uh, bog down on that. So we'll we'll move on to the the next point here, which is Harley Quinn's introduction at, into the main comics universe. Um, this is also still about the Joker. Yeah. I, okay. So one thing I think we both didn't like is her reading these these like self help dating books and trying to use that on the Joker. I, that wasn't in volume four. That was in a previous one. But okay. We didn't we didn't cover that, so we didn't get a chance to talk on it. But yeah, I, I'm definitely in agreement with you there. I, I did not like that story, and I the rest of her use in this I thought was good. I mean, she's a good way to. I mean, she, I think she's kind of been in New Fifty Two, kind of been separated from the Joker. Yeah, like she has. they cross paths occasionally, but it's they're not as consistently together as they used to be. Well, no, like they're separated now completely. Okay, well, I know in a couple of the stories I've read, they've crossed paths uh, in the New 52. Yeah, but it's, it's an antagonistic relationship now. It's, it's always kind of been an antagonistic well, well, I mean, relationship. More like directly antagonistic. Okay. She's trying to be a hero, basically. Okay, so so I'm, I'm fine with that. I, I, I think 
in the New 52, she wouldn't work with him. But I think in Earth 1, the, the one that, that we'll be covering primarily on this show, because we're, the, the stories go up until New 52 begins, I think she's a good counter to the Joker. Like, she can make those, what would otherwise be super heavy Joker stories, into a little bit lighter because she adds another element of humor and she can maybe add a little bit of conscience to the Joker because she's not, she's not as sadistic as the Joker. Like she's just fascinated by the Joker. So I think, I think she can bring down his level of, of sadistic sadisticness. And yeah, exactly. I think, I think she's a good foil for him as far as keeping his, his mayhem, under wraps. Well, and she has a little bit of humanity and morality left, which, I mean, in the New 52, she's teaming up with Green Arrow now. I think there was a good line in here, and I don't remember who delivered it. I want to say it was Pettit, because he seems the most likely source about, you know, why don't you just kill these people? Like, what happens when Two-Face gets out and kills some people? Or what happens when Joker gets out and kills a hundred? I mean, there, there's definitely a sense to the Joker that when he is on his game, his body count has. is much higher than anyone else. Yeah, and it was Pettit who delivered that line. You're 100 right. Yeah, he is very much. If he's on his game, it's a mass casualty event. And I like that Harley Quinn can sometimes bring that down a little bit. Yeah, I but and it doesn't seem forced to me. I I don't know. I kind of like the idea of having the Joker as a mass casualty villain and. Nothing quells his rage except for wanting Batman to kill him. He, his sole motivation is to have Batman fall. I agree, but I think you need a again. A you foil. need a variety of stories with yeah. characters, or they become one note. And I yeah. don't think the oh Joker's out. It's going to be a mass casualty story. Is is a good thing to yeah, have? It's, it's a bad precedent to set. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, I I do like that. I would like to have some Joker stories where the the fallout is maybe. Not bodies; it's something else. So yeah. that so that we get a variety of stories. I can see that. I can agree to that. Yeah. Um, so the last point we had with the Joker was his goal in this was to murder Hope uh, by killing the babies, like murder the hope of of rebuilding Gotham. Yeah, it is a great great symbolism with what's going on in the world. Even you know he's standing up against what now is you know Lex Luthor and the whole city of Gotham. Uh. Where, where he's like, okay, this is, you know, my I have only have one shot to to end this whole rebuilding process and to murder Hope and just bring everything back to destination, dissolution. Yeah, I, I really liked that um, goal of his. I thought it was very clever. I, I, I felt like that was a sign of his intelligence, which, as I mentioned earlier, is the type of Joker that I like to see. I don't want him to just be killing for the sake of killing. You know, I want him to have a purpose, and as you said, usually that is to get to Batman in some form or fashion, and this was, he was having trouble doing that, so this was what he resorted to. I really liked it. It's I mean, a much bigger scale of things, too, in this, because it's like, I can, I'll not only will I get to the Batman, but I'll just completely desolate, you know, turn this entire rebuilding process on its head, and cause them the absolute most chaos by letting them elevate themselves a little to bring them down further. But I think, and this is something with the character of the Joker, is I think that was 
that was a secondary. That wasn't even a secondary goal for him. That may have been a secondary outcome. Yeah. But his primary goal was Batman's not paying attention to me. I need Batman to pay attention to me, so I'm going to make the biggest stink I possibly can to like get him to pay attention. Child. To me. Yeah, I mean, really, that that's basically what he. What if you boil it down deep enough, that's what it becomes. Yeah. This is a good portrayal. I think the overall takeaway is that this is just a phenomenal portrayal of Joker. Uh, and it's one that we both really enjoyed. Uh, the next talking point we have is the relationship between Batgirl and Azrael. Both of them uh, coming from parents who basically trained them to be assassins, to be not good guys. And we have a really cool relationship formed between these two characters. A synergy of sorts. And I think this... I mean, not not to rehash what we talked about with Nightwing and Robin, but I think this goes right along with that in that I think the writers were writing the team-ups for a synergy. So you had Nightwing and Robin, the both the former uh, wards of, or uh, associates of Batman in the Robin role. And then they were teaming up these, these two uh, as being former assassins now kind of being rehabilitated by Bruce. Although, I think... Barbara has more of an influence on Cassandra Kane than necessarily Bruce does. Being that she's former Batgirl. Well, just that she started out as an agent of Oracle and then was promoted to Batgirl. So oh, she yeah. was already working closely with Barbara. So I think that has more of an influence on her than necessarily Batman. But still, you have that synergy of past with them. So, so does that change your opinion on the whole Nightwing-Robin team-up thing, then? No, I still don't like it, okay. but I see what the writers were going for. Okay. I, I, I can see what they are going for. It just didn't work for me. One thing I did want to bring up is the ability of this Batgirl and how the uh, writers and artists depicted her communicating with Azrael. Uh, she is effectively mute. She can talk. She has the ability to talk. She just doesn't like, know how, I guess. I, I don't understand this because she can write. She can read. And she, and she can say stop and no. Yeah. And that's like about it. It's it's almost like she she never learned to talk. Her her muscles aren't trained for speaking. So they're in atrophied. some way. Yeah, that's the only thing I can I can see. I mean, I'm assuming although I I don't know for sure. I'm assuming she gains more speech as we go along. Otherwise, it's going to be very difficult for the writers to keep writing like this. It was kind of novelty in this story, but I could see this getting old really fast. Agreed. But it, in this story, the way it's depicted, you know, strictly sticking to just this story, it was really cool to see her, how they portrayed her communicating and and sharing ideas with Azrael uh, through dance. And we even get a little bit where uh, Babs gives him a harmonica and she dances. That was so awful. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was so awful. That was so cheesy and forced. I mean, that, yeah. that belonged in a Christmas special, not... A, in, a Star Wars Christmas special? No, not that bad. But, <laughs> I, I mean, you can have light moments like that in DC Comics. I mean, they've had Christmas specials in the past. But inside this story, it just did not seem to fit. And I mean, I think that's something I, I don't... I don't think I have another place to talk about, so it might as well be here, about how the Azrael book just... It was a little bit off. Like, it had a lot more filler than a lot of the other tie-in books. The writing, I personally, I found really bad. A lot of the same things that you're talking about where it's just things that didn't fit in the story or things that just... It just it wasn't good writing, in my opinion. The Azrael... I've never been a big fan of Azrael Batman, personally, or Azrael as a character. And maybe that's just me. 
Honestly, but, I, I, I find this portrayal of Azrael kind of the character growth at this point in the story, which is quite a bit, I mean, several years removed from Nightfall, which is the only other time I've run across Azrael. I like the character growth that's going on with Azrael. Like his interaction with Dr. T- Leslie Tompkins and his kind of uh, breaking, like he, he, he's got this thing where the mask goes on and he kind of changes to become Azrael and he feels... Without the mask, he can't do anything as John Paul Valley, and he feels like with the mask, John Paul Valley can't do anything, and Azrael just takes over. And I think we're starting to see growth. That it's slow, but we're starting to see growth where he's maybe getting Azrael persona, if you want, if you want, under control. control, and and so and John Paul's becoming more capable. So I think they're kind of merging into what this character eventually should be. Yeah. I mean, just like at this point in their depiction on Azrael, I'm not a fan of character. Now, that being said, yes, there is a lot of really good character growth in here. But I'm just talking about like, the, the writing of Azrael's books. I don't know what it was, but it, the writing just turned me off. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I'm not a huge fan of the character, but I can see the improvement. So I, I, I can't it's I can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. No, I'm, I'm just talking about the writing for the Azrael books in this story. I'm talking about Azrael being the yeah. baby with the bathwater. No, I'm being a, the yeah, stories. I understand. I understand metaphors. I'm not Drax. <laughs> what I'm saying is the writing for the Azrael books in this story that we read was I did not like it at all. Okay, I I can I can see that, and I can mostly agree. There were portions of it I did like, but there was a. It was. A, it seemed like there was a very small portion of each Azrael book that was tied into this, and the rest was kind of filler. Yeah. And um, not to harken back to Nightfall too much, but I kind of felt the same way with the Robin stories in there. There was a little bit that focused with the story in the Robin title, the self-title, and then the rest was kind of... I mean, it was... I. It's hard to really complain about this, because if you're reading one of those stories and you don't care about the crossover event, you kind of want that that character to do something besides just be a cog in the crossover. So I can kind of see the development of the character within its own book and helping with the crossover. I can kind of see that. But if you're just reading the crossover and not reading that character's solo series, that extra stuff just kind of gets in the way. And a lot of the same stuff we could say about the Catwoman books in this story. Yeah, exactly. Catwoman, Azrael, and Robin, all three of those books are in this story. And all three of them had portions that dealt with primarily the character and probably uh, continuing on what's going on in that book once it's no longer associated with this event. But that stuff isn't relevant directly to the event. And so since we aren't following that book down every every issue, it kind of just feels like filler yeah. since we're covering the event. I'm not necessarily saying that... that I don't, it's difficult to say... For purposes of covering the event, I would like to see just it deal with the event. But for purposes of enjoying the title on its own, it needs something outside of the event. So I can kind of see what they're doing. It just makes it a little difficult, and I I don't really have a good opinion about it. Because I can see both sides of it, and I can appreciate both sides of it. All right, yeah. So, uh, of course, then we get to talk about uh, Barbara Gordon as Oracle. And this is one I, I want to talk about. I love how capable they made her. I totally agree with you, um, but I've been talking a lot, so I'll let you okay. kind of... Thank you. Sir. All right, so we get to see Barbara Gordon's Oracle, which is a role she's been in for a number of years at this point. However, what's really cool is even in this, uh, and she says this a few times, I'm a, low te- I'm a high-tech person in a low-tech world. 
even being that she's dealing with the post-apocalyptic setting where technology is by and large, the infrastructure is gone, she's still able to manage and maybe even thrive a little bit. Uh, she's able to get, to get contact and work the intel angle. She's able to survive and she's able to protect herself. Uh, we see this a lot in uh, when Pet, uh, Pettit and, and his uh, goons try and raid uh, Oracle's uh, safe house. She has a uh, booby trap. She has a, a safe room. She has all sorts of means and, and ways of getting herself safe if someone tries to invade. And it's just so cool to see her, t uh, as Oracle, still be able to work and be capable in this environment. Uh, and, and it's really cool once Batman came back, she was really able to provide intel to him. And throughout, I believe, she's providing intel to the Bat Squad, who's still in the town, like uh, Nightwing, and, you know, what have you. Well, early on, I, I think it was mostly the police she was helping. Cause yes. I, I think Huntress was the only person acting at that point, because Nightwing was still in Bloodhaven, and uh, Robin was probably with his dad. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, Batman wasn't there. So And not, Huntress wasn't really working with her. No, it was very much uh, she was providing intel to the police, albeit from a distance, and the police couldn't get to her initially. And that was when the low-tech stuff was going on, because yeah. that was when the power was at its... Like, no one had power, yeah. except I think she had some in her building, like generators or something. And uh, then as the power came back, that became less of an issue in the story, which I was fine with. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, then once once the Bat Squad was fun was, was working and, and there was enough power for their gadgets and communications and stuff, then she was just kind of, like, uh, operator. Yeah. Thriving. Which is great. I mean, th th that's a role that... It's a very unique role. It's not something we see other than that character. Like, you don't have really any analog for Oracle. No, you... Well, and the villains do, but, you know... But, yeah, no, it's it's a really rad... It's, it's cool that, that they're able to utilize Barbara Gordon in that manner and really make her a very capable character in this world and in this setting. Yeah, I definitely agree with that 100%. I, we both agree that's a good point. And, uh... It was another really cool thing is that you know it's it's just a character that a, a character with a disability who they wrote in a really awesome compelling way. She's not a one note character. She's not you know constantly harping or, or, or upset. You know she she's upset that she's lost the use of her legs, but she's not letting it stop who she is as a human being and stop helping and doing great things. Yeah, and I I would agree with that. Um... Hopefully, I mean, we got quite a bit of that between her and Nightwing, and I don't know how much interaction they had between the Killing Joke and now to have those conversations, but one thing I would caution about this is what I wouldn't want to see is them continue to hit that note every time, uh, or very a, a lot of times with her, where she's talking to somebody and complaining about, I feel less useful since I've lost my legs, like... I think I think for her the character growth that, that I would like to see is that she owns that role, you know. I mean, she kind of does. Yeah. But just kind of not necessarily drop, but just kind of resolve this uh, frustration with losing her legs. Like I know it's got to always be there because it, it's such a major thing in her life. But at some point, it can't be a big part of the story anymore. I don't feel. Yeah. Eventually, it's going to become a thing that she just daunts on. So now that brings up an interesting question. So we've already kind of talked about New 52 Joker. I think we should talk about New 52 Batgirl. I'm not as well versed. Well, because the very 
first issue of New 52, Barbara has the use of her legs. Now, it is not a, she never got, it never got paralyzed by the Joker. She did, and somehow got the use of her legs back. So the first few issues of New 52 Batgirl, she's struggling with the fear of having something like that happen again. Like, the first time she sees a gun, she, like, freezes. Because the last time she saw a gun like that, she yeah, lost the use of her legs. Yeah, that's, that's an, that sounds good. Now, obviously, they got past that. But, I mean, some people are really upset that they took her away from being Oracle and put her back to being Batgirl. I can see both sides of this. Because I think Oracle is an excellent character, and I really do like the character. But I also really like Barbara Gordon as Batgirl. Like, Yvonne Craig, Batgirl, and Batman 66, amazing. I really love those episodes that had all three of them in it. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, Batgirl I, in the animated series, great. I mean, we... I don't think we've covered anything in early Batman comics where we've seen Barbara Gordon as Batgirl. I think every time we've covered a Batman story, it's been post-Killing uh, uh, Joke. Yeah. So it'd be interesting to see what those stories are like. I agree with you wholeheartedly there. Um, I, I that I can see both sides of the coin on that one. Realistically speaking, I know we're talking about comic books and saying realistically speaking, comic books is kind of you know goofy, but... You're talking about a world where Wayne Tech exists, where you have these super-powered beings and this amazing... Where Cyborg exists. They, like, they could give her a Mantis suit? Remember that show on Fox? Not at all. Okay, it was mid-90s. This guy in a wheelchair gets this, like, exo-suit type of thing so he can walk and becomes the hero Mantis. So that's It's a whole... an acronym, M-A-N-T-I-S. It's an acronym for something. But... I'm sure it's horrible, but... No, it was actually good. I mean, it okay. was a Fox show, so it got canceled, you know, early. But yeah. <laughs> it was... I, well, it I thought it was good at the time. I haven't gone back to it, yeah. but... But, but it, very much so. Uh, there's there's a webcomic I read, semi-regularly, called Dresden Codec. And the author, and you know, who does the webcomic, did a thing called rebooting Batman, rebooting Justice League, rebooting the... Uh, Whatever the supervillain name you know, group name was, uh, but he talks about that. Injustice League. No, no, uh, Legion. So uh, back, Legion of Doom. Uh, so, but he talked about that. We are we we're talking about a world where Cyborg and Batman and all these you know technological heroes exist. It doesn't Batwing. Bat. Well, is Batwing technological? Oh yeah, that suit is full of technology. Okay, so anyway. Um, we're talking about a world where that exists. Why is it that Barbara Gordon would not have some sort of prosthesis to allow her to walk? It just doesn't make sense. And in a world where, like, just a cyborg, where a world where a cyborg exists, where he was rebuilt from the ground up, basically. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. And what I think would be interesting, although it's kind of a moot point at this point, but good discussion, since uh, Earth-1 is gone. Yeah. Um, rel- I mean, with Convergence, we're getting some stuff from Earth-1 crossing over with New 52, I guess. I'm not really sure what Convergence is doing. But it's something about bringing some people from the past back that people want to see. Um, what I think would have been a really good story that, unfortunately, I don't think we'll get now, would be the offer to Barbara Gordon for something like that and have her deal with, do I want to be mobile again or do I want to stay as Oracle in this role I've carved out for myself? And I think that would be a really good issue or two of uh, introspection and her deciding what she actually wants and not having it decided for her as kind of was the case with Killing Joke. Yeah, uh, that's what I'm saying. I was like, she would have the option of using her prosthesis. It just doesn't make sense for Barbara Gordon to be immobile and wheelchair bound in a world where 
um, you know, Batman and Wayne Tech Industries exist. Basically, my my complaint about that. But yeah, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying, and I agree. But I also like what they did with her choosing not to go that route. Yeah, but so I think that that's enough of discussion on Batgirl. Uh, let's talk about the Huntress. Uh, so I, I I think you said you're not as well you're not as familiar with the character. No, well, I mean, I understand the character. What I didn't couldn't gather from my research was what state she was at before this story started. Because it seemed like there was growth within this story of her, like when she put on the, the so she tried to be Huntress at the very beginning of this story. And I, I apologize if this is rehashing stuff that John and Melinda have covered, but we, it's kind of necessary for the point I want to make. She was trying to do stuff as Huntress and people were basically ignoring her. So she fashioned a bat suit, like a bat girl type suit. It wasn't the exact suit that Barbara wore. It was slightly different. And then, like, the symbol of the bat made people run away from her without having to do anything. So then she's basically running around as Batgirl for a while. And she's got this in her mind that, oh, I'm portraying the bat. I can't just kill people like I normally would. So she's trying to have to practice restraint. And um, we get the, like, it's a surprise to us, the reveal later on, at least in the reading order that we read later on, that she was dressed up as that new Batgirl before it was given over to Cassandra Kane. Um, and then, but as soon as Batman returned, he immediately spotted that it was Huntress based on her body posture and how she, like, leapt off a building or something. And so he knew all along, and he was watching her and trying to see if she met his standards. And so he let her be Batgirl for a while until he said she screwed up by letting Two-Face take over his territory. I don't feel like she really could have stopped that based on what we read in the story. So I feel like Batman was being too hard on her. And to me, that was the point that drove her to go join Pettit because Batman had basically said, you failed me, you can't be a part of what I'm doing. He scorned her, basically. Yeah, and and she has has pride. I mean, she's she's a superhero in her own right. And so she felt uh, scorned or or, uh, offended or something. And went over to Pettit, and then was continuing that restraint with Pettit. Like, she could have took Pettit out at some point, uh, but she wouldn't do it. Well, and, and yeah, it's very much... She, she's very much always been the... I'm, I am willing to go that length. She's, she's almost like the Punisher to, to Batman. Uh, where she's willing to take that extra step to kill, to exterminate the vermin, as it were. And, you know, that's something that Batman's always had qualms with. She's trying to do the right thing, but she's definitely not doing it the right way. Again, to reference Arrow, which is the TV show, there's a lot of parallels in the the TV show arc of Oliver Queen and Huntress, because in the first, like, season or two, he's killing bad guys with his arrows, and then he throws a switch, and he's like, I'm not going to kill anymore, and then he kind of struggles with it, because there's some scenarios where that would be really helpful. If I could just kill this guy, that would be really helpful. But I'm trying to not do that, so I'm not going to do that. Yeah. And I see that same kind of character growth here with the Huntress, and I hope it continues beyond this this story. And I wasn't able to get a lot of detail in my reading. I mean, I saw later on she ends up part of uh, JSA or JLA, one of them. So she does get a bit of get to be a bit of a hero later on and get kind of accepted more than she was in this story. So I, I, I see this as probably was growth for her that hopefully will stay and won't just be uh, a one-off. A one-off, and, and she's back to uh, killing pretty regularly. Yeah. 
And, and that's something, you know, we'd have to research, but I assume that being part of the J-whatever-A that she is, J, I'm assuming J-S-A. I think it was J-L-A, but... I, 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 yeah, either Because I think J-L-A is the sub-team and J-L is the main... I don't know. Anyway, um, it, it, you know, being part of a team like that, I'm being in a mixed environment, I'm sure her killing would probably go over not that well. And I think she was on Birds of Prey at some point yes, as well. Yes, she was. So... Is there more to... I mean, because it sounded like when we talked yesterday, you did not like the Huntress. I, did, I didn't dislike her. I thought it was a change for the character. I didn't like her, you know, her, like you, we've already touched on her Nightwing's interaction. But that's more what I didn't like. I, I, to me, that's more of an issue with Nightwing because she was being faithful to him. Like, she wasn't going well, around trying to rekindle old relationships with somebody else. He was doing that with Babs, to well, me. We've already talked yeah, about this. Anyway, so. um, one thing I did want to mention, though, is I really like her costume. Yeah, so her costume uh, used a lot of religious imagery. Well, I just like the purple on top of the... Like, the base is kind of black, and the purple on top of it. Yeah, and no, there's a little H that kind of looks like a bat symbol. Oh, that's a H. It's a cross. On her belt? Oh, I didn't look at her belt. Her belt's got a little H symbol that's that's split in the middle. Like, it's got two halves, and it kind of lo- the the edges of the H look like the curved bat symbol. Okay. Like, it's like the oh, bat yeah, symbol like without, without the look. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like a two-sided axe. Yeah, so, I mean, she does use a lot of religious imagery, though. That's you know, kind of her thing. Mm-hmm. She grew up very, very, very Catholic, so that's kind of part of her character history. Yeah, but, I did yeah. notice that, but that wasn't the yeah, part but, that yeah, I no, enjoyed. Yeah. I do like that. I know what you're talking about now, and yeah, I do think that looks really rad. But, yeah, so uh, I think that's that leads us to our final points. Yeah, and this is, we're just going to talk about No Man's Land overall. So anything you want to throw in here, Dylan, is fine. I, I I put a couple little sub points, but just whatever you want to say about No Man's Land. I, I think you, we we, uh, we have everything written down that I kind of want to talk about. Mostly I wanted to talk about, uh, well, let's go ahead and talk about it overall. I think we both agree here. It was a really, really cool start, really cool idea, a meandering middle which is, we seem to see a lot of with Batman, long Batman arcs. Yeah, I was going to say this reminded me very much of Nightfall in that the beginning was great, the end was great, middle and meandered. the middle was a lot of time of, of having Azrael as Batman. Yeah. And I thought the middle in this, while there were things that moved it along, so it wasn't quite as, as meandering. meandering, there was a lot of filler stuff. Yeah, so I we agree on that. Um I liked, and I'll make the uh, comparison to uh, Iron Man story, uh, Iron Man Armor Wars, where in Iron Man Armor Wars, Tony Stark really didn't have a good reason not to get the Justice or, or the Avengers help. In this one, they actually address Superman coming in, seeing that oh wow, these people are destitute. There's, I can't inspire hope because there is no hope here to inspire. So well, I, it just seemed like there was too much for him to do. Is yeah. kind of how I took that. Not it, it necessarily overwhelmed by the like there was too much demand for what he could provide, and him helping a certain certain people and not helping others would be more harmful than him just staying away and letting them rebuild uh, at their own. Exactly. Pace. So they really did a great job, in my opinion, of of explaining away why Superman, for example, couldn't come in and just fix everything. Now, one thing I did read was the Justice League on the outside was uh, keeping uh, outside forces from going in and making things worse. Yeah, I could see that. Like, But yeah. we didn't get that in here at all. Yeah, I, I could see that, though, and that's definitely a good point. 
And, and they, they actually did, you know, explain that stuff. And like you said, you read it where the Justice League is going, okay, we got to keep, all we can do is keep other forces from coming in and destroying things further. And I like that for 90% of this story, Batman didn't leave. Now, there is one story in here, one of the, um, I think one of the collected ones that had multiple stories in it, that mentions Bruce having to go help out with someone worse than Etrigan. The demon, well, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and so it, it seemed like he left for a period of time, but also then if you look at the other stories, it doesn't look like he leaves. So I'm not really sure how that continuity, how that all, yeah, fits into continuity. But it, so I'm just going to ignore that story, even even though now that I've said it so for completeness. But just the fact that Bruce didn't go off to do Justice League stuff, I thought that was great. You yeah, know, it, he was a. And I hope in the Justice League stories, Batman wasn't a part of it. I mean, we, we had the one tie-in Justice League story in here, which I don't remember what was in that story. But uh, um, I'm hoping the other Justice League stories, Bruce was not involved so that it was it was continuous across the line that Bruce was dealing with No Man's Land in those books, and then the rest of the Justice League was dealing with the other stuff. Yeah, so uh, you know, I think we both agree, though, that was a really good way of handling it and having Superman show up to explain why Superman couldn't help or why Superman would be unable to make it, make it better really was an excellent uh, way of doing what they did. But I also did like that, that Superman came back later as Clark Kent and helped out in the way that Clark Kent could by yeah. helping them with growing crops and then turning into Superman, making it rain, a little bit of cheating. But yeah. still, just... Make like, it rain! <laughs> just, just, just that... Uh, Clark Kent was able to help, but Superman was not able to help. was just a really interesting touch, I thought. I agree completely. So, you know, it's just like being being a superpower, being in this setting, in this post-apocalyptic setting, which is something I really have a, you know, a place in my heart for post-apocalyptic. Sorry, I know you not so much. No, I mean, I like a good one, but a good one to me is kind of few and far between. So, yeah, but, uh, yeah, I, I think it was an excellent way they handled it. Uh, I, I don't really want to dredge on this too much further, but it's just the way they, they handled having, not having Superman or Green Lantern or whoever come in with, with these amazing superpowers, fantastic, fantastic powers, and just fix everything was really well handled. Yeah, okay, so I guess the last part then is we just have to give a rating to this volume. So just looking at volume four, um, I would say the rating I would give it would be uh, four out of five batterings. What do you say? Um, I would give it... Four out of five batterings. So yeah. together we give it four out of five batterings. Definitely worth picking up. Uh, great, great. Uh, at least the, the part four of the story is really, the last part is really, really cool and compelling. So definitely worth reading the entire thing, but especially the, the last part. Yes, and you can find these in trade paperbacks. Check your local comic store. And if you don't have a local comic store, you can try Amazon or online vendors or even some comic stores that if you don't have one will ship you stuff. So. Yeah, but even if you don't pick up this story, do visit your local comic book store because comic book stores are awesome. Yes, and they need help staying in business or we might lose print comics. Yes. So not not to guilt trip you, but but uh, guilt trip. <laughs> so after, after this, I'm going to go to the comic store and get some stuff that I need to pick up. So um, we'll end with the or well let let's so. If you want to comment uh, for us, tell us what you like, what you don't like, what you thought of this story, um, or correct us on anything we may have got wrong, 
please do leave comments on this page on the batmanuniverse.net and uh, we will incorporate those into future episodes when we hear from you. Of course, you can always look up us and find our stories at archactionspodcast.blogspot.com. Yes, if you like our format here and you want to hear us cover different stories, you can go there and see the other podcasts we do, which has much less Batman in it. Let's let's go into the credits here. Uh, this story ran from this volume of the story ran from December 1999 to February 2000, and the jurisprudence story, which was Batman 572 and Detective Comics 739, was written by Greg Rucka. Artist was Damon Scott. Editors Joseph Illage was the associate. Gore Finkel and Darren Vincenzo were the regular editors, and Denny O'Neill or Dennis O'Neill, as he's credited here, was the group editor. All right, Legends 125 was written by Greg Rucka. Artist Rick Burchett. And the editors were Joseph Illage, which, who was the associate. Matt Idelson and Dennis O'Neill were the group. Robin 71 through 73 was written by Chuck Dixon. Artist Staz Johnson for 71. Gordon Purcell for 72. And N. Stephen Harris for 73. Edited by Frank Berrios, who was the assistant, and Matt Idelson. Batman Day of Judgment was written by Scott Beatty, artist Dean Zachary, editors Joseph Illage, associate, and Darren Vincenzo. Catwoman 75 through 77 was written by John Ostrander, artist Jim Vallant, and editors, assistant editor Frank Berrios and Matt Idelson. This is the regular editor. This is the regular. Azrael 59 to 61, written by Dennis O'Neill, artist Roger Robinson, and editor Mike Carlin. Shadow of the Bat, 93 through 94, written by Greg Rucka. Artist Paul Ryan for 93. Uh, Bill Sinkowitz, thank you, for 93. And Pablo Raimondi for 94. Edited by uh, Frank Barrios, who was the assistant. Joseph Illich, who was the associate. And Dennis O'Neill. Shell Game, which was Batman 573 and Detective 740. Written by Greg Rucka. Artist Sergio Cariello. I think that's right. Editors Joseph Illage, Associate, Darren Vincenzo, and Dennis O'Neill was the group editor. All right, then Endgame, which was Legends 126, Batman 574, and Detective 741. It was written by Greg Rucka and Dennis Grayson. Devin. Devin Grayson, who did Legends 126 and Detective 741. Uh, artists were Damian Scott for uh, Legends 126 and Detective 741, and then Del Sham. And then editors were Frank uh, Baradis, Bar- Barids, Barids, yeah, uh, who was the assistant. Joseph Illage, who was the associate. Darren Vincenzo and Dennis O'Neill, and Matt Edelson, Edelson for seven forty one. And that's the end of the credits. Thank you for listening, and please check out some of the other podcasts on the BatmanUniverse.net. There's the Comics Cast, the Regular Cast, uh, Batgirl to Oracle. Everyone loves the Drake about uh, Tim Drake. There's also comics reviews, uh, Batman news, movie news, all sorts of things. It is your hub for Batman information, the BatmanUniverse.net. Thank you. As you said, detective, 
This is not over.